BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. Activist and former sharecropper from Mississippi, Fannie Lou Hamer, is the subject of a new book by historian Keisha Blaine, who sheds light on Hamer's life, her ideas, and political strategies during the Civil Rights Movement, and celebrates Hamer's impactful way of speaking truth to power. We are sick and tired of being sick and tired for so many years. Negroes have suffered in the state of Mississippi. The book is titled Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. And as the fight for voting rights and equality continues this century, Blaine joins us to talk about the lessons we can take from Hamer's fight in the last. That's next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in for Mina Kim. In 1962, Fannie Lou Hamer was a 44-year-old sharecropper with a sixth-grade education living in rural Mississippi when she had a political awakening, an awakening that propelled her into a life of activism, fighting for voting rights, fighting against white supremacy and state-sanctioned violence, and speaking the cold, hard truth about inequality everywhere she went, sometimes enduring brutal physical abuse from police and private citizens for doing so. Hamer's story is significant to the history of civil rights in the U.S., and historian Keisha Blaine spotlights it in her new book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. Welcome to Forum, Keisha Blaine. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for this book. You know, Fannie Lou Hamer has such a powerful story, but it's not one that's really been lionized the way the stories of Martin Luther King Jr. or Malcolm X or Rosa Parks have. I'd love if you could start by sharing who Fannie Lou Hamer was before she became an activist. Absolutely. Fannie Lou Hamer uh, was a sharecropper from the state of Mississippi. Uh, and one of the things that I emphasize in the book is that she did not become an activist until she was 44 years old. Uh, And so she spent uh, the better part of her life working from sunup to sundown uh, on a Mississippi plantation. Uh, As I described in the first chapter, she was lured into sharecropping at the age of six. Uh, And so this was, uh, for those who might not be familiar, a labor system. Yes, please expand uh, on that. Exploitation, right. And so in the aftermath of the Civil War, Um, with the end of slavery, um, with, of course, as we know, with the passage of the 13th Amendment, um, the the, the system of sharecropping was introduced. And this was, uh, it's important to recognize that um, this was a system designed by white landowners. And the idea was that Black people um, would still be able to work on the plantations. Uh, It kept them in a system of dependency and debt. uh, And Fannie Lou Hamer's family was one of so many families, not only in Mississippi, but across the South, working in the system whereby they were cultivating the crops, but not owning um, the crops, certainly not owning the land, and, and only receiving a share of what, of what they cultivated. Um, and oftentimes even having to pay additional fees for the tools they were using um, uh, as an example. So this was a system of exploitation and Fannie Lou Hamer 
uh, lived uh, in this context uh, leading up to August of 1962 when she attended a mass meeting and learned about her rights to vote as a citizen of the United States. And she had been working since she was six years old. Is that correct? Exactly. Uh, One of the, I think, really sad stories uh, that Hema tells is how the white landowner approached her at age six and lured her into a life of sharecropping. He promised her that if she would pick cotton, uh, that he would give her some candy. Uh, And of course, she was only six, uh, did not, she certainly did not understand the full implications of what was going on. She readily agreed to do it. Uh, And once she started picking cotton at that age, uh, she never stopped. And how did that impact her ability to go to school? It impacted her greatly. Um, Fannie Lou Hamer ultimately received um, a a sixth grade education. Uh, She did attend school uh, for several years, but it was uneven uh, because oftentimes she would only be able to attend school um, when uh, the, the season was not as busy in terms of cultivating um, cotton. And uh, by the time she um, made it to about the sixth grade level, she needed to stop attending school in order to help her family. They were struggling to, to make ends meet. Uh, and so uh, unfortunately, she did not, did not have a whole lot of formal education. But as I show in the book, she was absolutely brilliant. Uh, she read as much as she could read uh, whenever she learned something new. Uh, she worked to tell others. Uh, and she ended up being a force uh, and such an influence in the movement despite uh, the limited formal education. And so you mentioned SNCC, um, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, coming to town. And, and that was the spark for her. Can you talk about um, that part of her story? Absolutely. Uh, in August 1962, Fannie Lou Hamer attended a mass meeting uh, at a local church. She was not sure that she would attend, but a friend encouraged her to go. And this was a meeting that was organized by the activists uh, in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was an uh, interracial civil rights uh, organization that played a vital role uh, in the expansion of Black political rights. And at this meeting, um, Fannie Lou Hamer heard uh, about several things, uh, particularly about the right uh, to vote as a citizen of the United States. According to Hamer, she had no knowledge that she couldn't in fact vote uh, as a a US citizen. And this is not surprising when you think about the the lengths to which white supremacists went to block people from having access, um, particularly black people from having access to the ballot box. But when she learned about uh, the reconstruction amendments in particular, she was excited because she saw the possibilities before her. She recognized that she could cast a ballot and therefore overturn, or at least attempt to overturn systems, um, you know, in unfair policies and practices and laws that had been in place for decades. Uh, so that became uh, a political awakening for her. Uh, and from August 1962 until her passing in 1977, uh, Hamer worked with SNCC. Uh, she was a, a field secretary field secretary for the organization and worked closely with individuals like Bob Moses, uh, Ella Baker, and many others. And she really 
kind of goes into the spotlight at the Democratic National Convention in 1964 for her testimonial. Um, We'll have a bit of that that we can play in a moment. But um, what she describes, she's going to testify about her experience of of going to try to register to vote and and what she endured. Um, We don't have that part of the the speech included. So can you kind of give us a little bit of the background of what happened um, when she and others um, were confronted by police? Yes. Uh, so as I mentioned, Fannie Lou Hamer joined the movement in August 1962. And one of the, the very first things that she did was volunteer to attempt to register to vote. Um, SNCC, you know, they were trying to organize people, certainly in the Mississippi Delta. And uh, Fannie Lou Hamer well, was one of the individuals who traveled uh, to um, a courthouse uh, in Indianola. The, the plan was that they would attempt uh, to register to vote, recognizing that they could in fact do so according to the constitution. Of course, what we know uh, through the history is that there were all of these strategies in place meant to stop people from actually exercising the right to vote. And in particular, Fannie Lou Hamer encountered resistance. Uh, she also encountered a, liter- a literacy test, uh, which was an unfair test that uh, asked a bunch of questions about the Mississippi Constitution. Hamer, who, as I mentioned, only had a sixth grade education, did not know the answers to those questions. She was unsuccessful um, that first time. But what is interesting is she talks about the the police and the way that police officers uh, tried to intimidate her and others, uh, certainly at um, the courthouse, but also as they were traveling back. this is just one first experience that she encounters by 1963, which is the year before she gives this powerful testimony in uh, Atlantic City, she goes through um, a painful experience where yet again, she's traveling with a group of activists heading back home in this case after um, a voting registration uh, workshop and uh, she's brutally beaten. Uh, she is, uh, she's arrested as many uh, activists um, who were with her they're taken to a, a prison cell in Winona, Mississippi, and there uh, Hamer endures a brutal beating that actually leaves her with kidney damage, a blood clot in her eye. It worsens the limp uh, that she had uh, developed in childhood. And, and by the time she makes it to the 64 convention, she's talking about all of these things. She's talking about state sanctioned violence. She's talking about voter suppression and pointing out to people, listen, Black people are being treated as second class citizens. They cannot vote. And here's why. Well, let's hear a bit of Fannie Lou Hamer at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. So she, where we come in, she's just detailed the beatings she and others received after being jailed for their their attempts to register to vote. All of this is on account of we want to register to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America? Thank you. Again, that was Fannie Lou Hamer at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. And this was really a speech that um, 
just people took notice, including President Lyndon B. Johnson, who was a little rattled uh, by her her testimony. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, Fannie Lou Hamer was such a, a powerful speaker. When she spoke, it was hard not to take notice. You had to listen. And, and more to the point, you were moved by her words. Lyndon B. Johnson at the time was quite frankly terrified. Um, he was terrified because he knew that Hamer was going to speak truthfully about the challenges that Black people were facing. And more to the point, uh, she would get people to act. Uh, He tried to divert attention away from her speech by calling it an impromptu press conference at the time. Uh, But as we have now heard, and and I think many people heard later, uh, when the speech was aired uh, on TV, it it didn't matter, right, that, that there was an earlier interruption. People were moved, people... I think were galvanized. And I would argue that that particular moment laid the groundwork for the passage of the 1965 um, Voting Rights Act uh, because it, it caused people to see clearly what Black people were facing, not only in Mississippi, but across the US South. We're talking with historian Keisha Blaine. Her new book is Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. And we welcome you, our listeners, to join the conversations. What questions do you have for Keisha Blaine? What are your reactions to hearing Fannie Lou Hamer's story? Call us now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll have more after the break. This is Forum. I'm Ariana Prale. And for Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. We're talking with historian Keisha Blaine. Her new book is Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. Blaine is also an associate professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh and a 2022 New America National Fellow. And we're talking about the life and legacy of Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, Keisha Blaine, you write about Hamer, how Hamer was intentional in using her voice to talk about what was hidden under the covers, experiences that she had with state-sanctioned violence, for example. She talked about them explicitly, um, as we heard a little bit in her speech. 
And, you know, it wasn't the melodical oratory of Martin Luther King Jr. She wasn't one for metaphor either. It was raw, unvarnished testimonial truth. Can you talk about why that was so significant? Yes. I, you know, I think it's one of the aspects of Hamer's story that truly resonates with me because Hamer spoke truth to power, right? I mean, that's one thing. Uh, but also she told it like it was. And, and you know, we often talk about speaking directly to problems or being, you know, um, radically honest. Uh, she encapsulates what all of that means. Um, because of her experiences and, and also because of her background and the fact that she had limited formal education, uh, there's a way in which she would point out a problem and she would not worry about mincing words. She would not um, make it rosy. Uh, you know, this was not a person who um, paid any attention to what we talk about today. And, you know, as the politics of respectability, this was someone who uh, simply called it out as she saw it. And that made a lot of people uncomfortable. But the irony is that though it made many people uncomfortable, I think it compelled many people to act. Uh, you know, after you had an encounter with Hamer and, and she would tell you exactly um, what you were doing wrong or, or what was you know, wrong about your approach, uh, you could you could feel bad in the moment, but it stayed with you and you had to reflect and you had to begin the process of transformation. So I think um, that this particular aspect of Hamer's life and, and her story is a meaningful one. People could relate to her. Um, they, they trusted her because they knew that she was authentic, that she didn't sugarcoat. She told you the truth always. And so you felt like you would you would always get the, the answer that you knew um, would, would be most useful for you. And, uh, and, and so I think collectively all of these things made her stand apart, even though uh, it, it, it also marginalized her from other activists who saw her as different. Hmm. And you titled the book Until I Am Free, which is taken from one of her frequent sayings, Until I Am Free, you are not free either. It was a simple phrase, but it, it held so much understanding um, of the interconnectedness in the struggle for freedom and inequality. Can you speak some more about that? I know we have the terms like intersectionality um, now, courtesy of Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, but Haver, Hamer was on that wavelength as well at her time. Absolutely. I think it's important to recognize Hamer um, as one of the foremothers of intersectionality. Uh, as you point out, this is a term that we don't use until, uh, you know, 1980s onward uh, because of the scholarship of um, Kimberly Crenshaw. But Hamer was, um, I think, one of the key individuals to point out the importance of seeing uh, just the, the varied ways that people experience oppression and particularly black women uh, so that we can't just talk about um, sexism, but we also have to talk about racism. We also have to talk about classism too uh, and, 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 and just a host of other ways that black women experience oppression. Uh, so this saying, um, you know, I think we hear it in different contexts, but sometimes we hear it uh, from Hamer's mouth. She would say it's something like nobody's free until everybody's free or she would say, whether you're white or black, uh, you are not free until I am free. And it was a way to get people to, to think about how um, our fates are connected, right? We are connected as individuals, certainly within the national context, we are all members uh, of the national polity. And what that means uh, is that if one person uh, is in chains, then um, we have to be concerned. I mean, it's, 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 you, you sort of can't experience true liberation if the person next to you um, is, is, 
uh, being held captive. So Hamer, I think, wanted to emphasize all of these threads and um, we can certainly situate her as part of the, the larger uh, genealogy of intersectionality and, and broadly speaking, black feminist thought. Hmm. We have a caller, Kevin, in San Jose, who has a question or comment. Uh, Kevin, you're on. Yeah, thanks. Um, heroic of, uh, of Fannie Lou Hamer to speak truth to power. And I bet I speak for a lot of the listeners. I never heard of this woman before. This is the first time, thanks to your show. And I don't know what that says. I think it says something tragic that like half of America wants to bury their heads in the sand and not know what they don't know, like in the uh, example of critical race theory. Mm. And let me give you a a local example. I couldn't sleep last night. And so I was reading a book about the Panama, Panama Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco, 1915. I thought that would put me to sleep. But one of the more interesting points of that book was they had a booth for Race Betterment Foundation, and that group was for eugenics to keep the races pure. And that booth and that cause was 100 percent supported by the people who put on that show. So I'm just saying, well, there's a lot that we don't know that we don't know, and uh, I'm not too optimistic about um, America changing for the better. Any comments? Thank you for your comment, Kevin. And Keisha Blaine, yes, I'm I'm sure this is a large part of why you dedicated an entire book um, to her is is her not having that recognition um, in our history. Um, Do you want to speak to that and also to Mm -hmm. the broader comments um, about our just the way our history is taught here in the States? Yes, uh, this is exactly why I wrote this book uh, and why I continue to write um, these kinds of narratives because I, you know, I teach at the college level and uh, you know, I teach courses on the civil rights movement. And sometimes I'm so dismayed when students walk into the classroom and I say, who are the key civil rights uh, icons? Without fail, people will say Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and the, then I would say, okay, what about the women? And someone would say Rosa Parks. And there are times when there would be the silence when I say, who else? Who else? Uh, and, and again, that's at the college level. And it's revealing how much of the history we don't know. I'm certainly thrilled that students are taking my class uh, in order to expand their knowledge. But the reality is so many people will not have an opportunity to sit in my classroom. So many people will not have an opportunity to sit in anyone's classroom. Uh, and, and part of why it's important, I think, to tell this story uh, is to expand our collective knowledge uh, and help us figure out solutions um, and strategies for the future. I mean, that's the, the crux of it. I wanted to write a book that would help us to look backwards, but also to look forwards. You know, how do you plan? How do you um, make this nation better? How do you make this world better without a deep understanding of, of what those who came before us did and and that means knowing the bad right the ugly um and also knowing the good and and knowing the inspirational stories uh and and so i i, I am disheartened you know as you are by all of these efforts um across the nation to limit what we teach in schools uh, at the same time i'm i'm encouraged by the resistance right um that, that people are standing up and saying no we we want to tell the full um, essence of, of the you know of our history, even the ones that make us feel uncomfortable, because that's the only way we can 
be better um, and strategize uh, to to build an inclusive democracy. Hmm. Well, let's go to another caller, Lisa in San Carlos. Lisa, you're on. Hi there. Thank you so much, Professor Blaine, for um, writing this book and bringing Ms. Hamer's life um, to so many people. Uh, what I'd love to have you comment on is one of the reasons that Ms. Hamer was at that convention was that she was defending or supporting the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which was an alternative to the traditional Democratic Party. And it was cha- her party was or her organization was challenging um, the norms of the of the conservative Democratic Party. And I would love you to speak to that. Um, you know, in the quote that you played from Ms. Hamer, she said, you know, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party wants to be seated at this convention. And so it would be great for you to speak about that, please. Thanks, Lisa. Yes, that's a perfect segue for the question that I uh, wanted you to speak to is definitely uh, talking about her role in in co-founding the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, um, also her run for Congress within that platform. Um, Can you talk about that part of her work? Absolutely. Um, One of the things that Fannie Lou Hamer wanted people to know and wanted people to know across the country was the way that the Mississippi Democratic Party, uh, the the statewide party, um, excluded Black participation. And this is not only unique uh, to Mississippi, this is true at the time when we look at Southern Democrats broadly in this period, um, they were not very interested uh, in in including um, Black people. uh, And the statewide party in Mississippi um, was an an all-white party that you know, it, it's and, and let me just provide the context here. We're talking about a moment in time where only five percent of black residents in the state of Mississippi were registered to vote. Uh, an estimated four hundred and fifty thousand black people lived in the state. Uh, and so we understand the implications of having a, a so-called statewide party representing the interests of the people of Mississippi, but not speaking for not considering the needs of all of these other right people in the state. And Fannie Lou Hamer wanted to, you know, certainly change all of that. Uh, When she showed up uh, in Atlantic City in August of 1964, she shows up, uh, as you point out, um, as a representative uh, of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which had provided an alternative uh, and, and also uh, a space in which to, to say to others, listen, the problem isn't that Black people are not interested in uh, electoral politics. The problem is that you are blocking us from full participation. And she wanted to shame the, the, the statewide party. And she was really calling upon the Democratic Party on a national level to take a stand um, and to seat the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party to show that they were, in fact, committed uh, to an inclusive vision. Well, obviously, um, they they struggled to do so and, and only offered to Hamer uh, and the other delegates uh, two seats, two symbolic seats that, that ultimately did not hold much weight. These are non-voting um, seats. And Hamer resisted that. Uh, she resisted that because she knew that it was, it was just mere symbolism. She didn't want symbolism. She wanted actual changes. Uh, and, and so she uh, ended up, I think, in that particular moment, uh, even getting into skirmishes with other civil rights 
leaders who worried that you know if Hamer kept pushing and, and and if she wouldn't bend if she wouldn't compromise that it would ultimately make it hard uh, to strategize you know with Lyndon B Johnson and and also to collaborate with the National Party uh, moving forward, uh, but she held her own and I think uh, as I mentioned earlier I, I spoke about her laying the groundwork for the the passage of the Voting Rights Act. The reality is that the Voting Rights Act would not have been passed uh, in '65 were it not for for someone like Hamer calling attention to the hypocrisy, calling attention uh, to the ways that Black people were being ex excluded um, and demanding better. I'm going to go to another cut that's actually related um, to this. She was being interviewed actually in Berkeley, California, um, by uh, Colin, journalist Colin Edwards in 1965. And she was talking about um, her hope for the future of the party. Are you hopeful of the future of, for your party, politically? Yes, I'm hopeful for the future of this party because um, all across this country, we have young people that's very aware of what's going on in this country. Will you be standing uh, for election at the next uh, congressional elections? Well, uh, we plan to run people, you know. In fact, uh, we have people in Sunflower County where I live as we hope to run for our circuit clerk in Sunflower County, and we will be having people to run all over the state for state election, county, on up to the United States representative and senators too. Something that um, stood out to me in listening to some of her recordings and in reading your book was the way that she spoke about um, young people and also, you know, talking about local office and really just having that um, grassroots understanding of of how to build power from the ground up. Can you speak about her approach and philosophy around that? Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say that she really loved uh, young people. I mean, it's, it's so remarkable uh, to me because, you know, oftentimes when we see interactions, I think, uh, and this is true even in the contemporary moment, we, we can see generational differences and divides whereby uh, older activists may um, sometimes, uh, you know, have differences of opinion, you know, with younger activists, and that can sometimes cause skirmishes. What's interesting about Hamer is that she was always trying to learn from younger activists. And so she, she mentored, she supported, but she also listened um, mm. and, took, and took their ideas seriously. And I think there's so much we can learn in that context. But, but to the larger point about leadership, um, what I also find extraordinary about her is how much she emphasized this notion of grassroots leadership. And, and this, this, of course, comes from her involvement in SNCC. Uh, it comes from you know, her own um, relationship with Ella Baker, who was the visionary um, of, of SNCC. And uh, it, it, was, it was this idea that every single person had something to offer. It's the idea that you cannot simply come into a space and appoint you know, one or two individuals as leaders and say, okay, we have to only listen to these two individuals, only they know best because perhaps they have you know, unique experience or perhaps they have certain credentials, uh, but more so that we have to give ordinary people and particularly within local context, the space in which to strategize um, among themselves. It was about not centering the one or two charismatic leaders, you know, the one or two people who always show up on the news and the folks who we see as representatives to, to shift from that model 
and think more collectively about getting people involved so that they too are, are part of the process of strategizing uh, in order to move their communities forward uh, as well as the nation forward. And, and I think that particular perspective was so powerful. Uh, and, and I would argue one that we can learn from in, in, the, in, the, in the contemporary moment where there's still a lot of discussion about, you know, you know, who's leading the movement, you know, who's doing this, who's doing that. And oftentimes I tell my students, while we're turning around looking for the leader to, to guide us, sometimes the answer is the person in the mirror, right? You're, you're looking for someone else to tell you what to do. Um, and yet the question is, what do you have to offer in the moment that could potentially be the solution that you're looking for? Hmm. And we're coming up on a break soon, but we can start this conversation. Another aspect um, that was really key in her values was her faith, um, was a big role in her activism. Can you start speaking a bit about the role her faith played in in her activism? Yes, uh, it it played such a crucial role. Uh, In fact, I I find that it's so fitting uh, that Hamer came to this political awakening uh, in the pews uh, of a local church, because it represented, I think, um, so much of what her life was like. It was seeing herself um, certainly as a civil rights activist, as a human rights activist, but also believing that it was divinely ordained, believing that it was not simply, um, you know, something she would do because she was interested or intrigued, but more to the point, she believed that it was God's will. She believed that God had called her. Uh, to in fact live a life uh, devoted to helping set people free. And she would always, um, you know, remind people of that. And and I think that made her all the more impactful because it meant that she didn't answer to people per se. Um, Mm -hmm. She certainly cared about people, listened to people, but she felt like she actually answered to a higher power. Um, And that, uh, I think, just changed the calculation for her. Uh, It gave her a lot of boldness, I think, and perseverance. We're talking with historian Keisha Blaine about the life of Fannie Lou Hamer. We'll have more after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mariana Prail and Fermina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. We've been talking with historian Keisha Blaine about her new book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. Dr. Blaine is also author of Set the World on Fire, Black Nationalist Women in the Global Struggle for Freedom and co-editor of 400 Souls with Ibram X. Kendi. And 
We have a couple comments that have come in. Um, Noel tweets, I first heard about Fannie Lou Hamer in the documentary series Eyes on the Prize. I recommend that to people who need to learn about this history. And, and actually, before I go to the other comment, I wanted to play another cut of Fannie Lou Hamer that we have. It's one that actually circulates a lot on social media and was particularly poignant um, last summer um, when the uprisings after the killing of George Floyd. Uh, let's hear that cut. The flag is, is drenched with our blood because, you see, so many of our ancestors was killed because we have never accepted slavery. We had to live on it, but we've never wanted it. So we know that this flag is drenched with our blood. So what the young people are saying now, give us a chance to be young men respected as a man. As we know, this country was built on the black backs of black people across this country, and if we don't have it, you ain't going to have it either, because we going to tear it up. That's what they're saying. And people ought to understand that. I, I don't see why they don't understand that. They know what they've done to us. All across this country, they know what they've done to us. Uh, again, just so powerful mm-hmm. anytime that <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah. Um, of of her yeah speaking and again you hear her speaking about young people and on behalf of young people and their and their pain and um in your book you, you know it is a blend of biography and social commentary where at moments you draw direct lines to Sandra Bland to Breonna Taylor mm-hmm. and to the found you know the origins of the Black Lives Matter movement what lessons do you take from her in terms of movement building um and what we see today so many lessons. Um, you know, I, I, I think one aspect which I mentioned earlier, I, I keep reflecting on this notion of grassroots leadership. There was a moment last year where, you know, every time you would put on the television, there would be someone, some, um, some leader, you know, uh, giving commentary about the uprisings. Oftentimes the, the, the tone would be one of critique people um, criticizing those who are in the streets, making demands, uh, just constantly criticizing. And I I thought a lot about Hamer and the way that she was always careful not to criticize, but to listen. Uh, Hamer was not a black nationalist, but she never condemned black nationalists. Mm. Uh, When people would say to her, you know, what, you know, what do you have to say about people are calling for black power? You know, you know, look, look at what they're doing, look at what they're saying. She would say, you need to focus on the oppressor. Do not find yourself ever in a position where you are criticizing those who are being oppressed and telling them how they need to fight their oppression. Um, and, and I think, you know, what we saw in the last year, I think, was a moment where we needed to think about this notion of grassroots leadership, where we focus on what people are saying. We don't have to agree. We don't always have to agree. We don't even always have to understand immediately, but we have to listen. And when we when we stand up and say, these people are wrong, it is absolutely terrible that folks are in the streets, um, you know, demanding change this way uh, or, you know, uh, criticizing people if they if they're talking about their reservations with the national anthem. You know, all of these things, I think 
we have to be mindful that when people call out problems, the response cannot be let's critique. Uh, the response has to be let's listen. What's the problem? How do we fix it? And I think Hamer's um, legacy is one of getting us to that place. I certainly hope that people will follow um, and you know her leadership in that way. Again, we're talking with historian Keisha Blaine about her new book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. And you are welcome to share your comments and questions about Fannie Lou Hamer's story or reflections about, about hearing it. And if you're a grassroots activist, is there an aspect of her story that particularly resonates with you? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. This listener writes, are there any current activists or movements that seem to be carrying on the spirit of Fannie Lou Hamer's activism? Any that give you the most hope for creating change? That's a great question. So many. Um, Stacey Abrams immediately comes to mind. You know, when I think about the work that she is doing constantly, uh, particularly around uh, challenging voter suppression. I think immediately about Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, I think about uh, just a number of initiatives that she's doing for, I mean, voter suppression being key, but also addressing economic justice. This was something that Fannie Lou Hamer was so committed to, as I explained in the book, uh, she wanted to uh, tackle hunger and poverty uh, in Mississippi and, and actually launched right, you know, Freedom Farm uh, in the late 1960s to, to provide food for people who needed it. And, uh, and Stacey Abrams, I think, walks in, 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 that, in, in that vein, uh, just always looking for ways to uplift marginalized groups. I think about Latasha Brown, um, mm -hmm. also another key activist in the struggle for voting rights. Uh, so, so many, so many Black women in particular, who I think are carrying forward uh, Hamer's message um, and really showing us the, you know, the importance of caring for those around us. That's key. Yeah, Representative uh, Cory Bush in Missouri was someone that came to mind um, for me as I was Absolutely. reading your book, um, mm -hmm. just coming directly from the grassroots and saying, hey, I'm going to run for Congress and, mm -hmm. and noting that Fannie Lou Hamer was specific and saying, I'm running because I want to show that black yes. people can run and that we yes. can be in office and someone who looks like me and has my background and has my education. Um, I can do this. We can do this. Mm -hmm. um, and. And also, I'm just thinking in, in the Bay Area, there's Moms for Housing, um, which mm -hmm. also just kind of took up um, a mantle um, fight for the fight around housing. And I believe you mentioned Mothers of the Movement before being mm -hmm. another one that, that has those echoes. Absolutely. So many, I think, um, contemporary examples of how um, Black women in particular, uh, and, and this is... This is something that we can't take lightly because, you know, as I point out in the book and in other contexts, we're talking about individuals who often find themselves right, at, at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. I mean, Black women are constantly to this very day, no matter how qualified and accomplished, are, are not being paid, uh, you know, at equal levels compared to, to other groups. Uh, and this is yet a group that I think despite an array of challenges are pushing forward, trying to come up with solutions, trying to, to, to use their voice um, at you know, whatever resources they have uh, to not only make things better 
for other Black people. And that's what I always say that is so important in the story, but to make this nation better for all of us. When Black women succeed, like all of us do by extension. I mean, I think that's the message that Fannie Lou Hamer wanted to convey and I hope people take seriously. Well, let's go to caller Chris in Woodside. Chris, you're on. Thank you. Um, I'm originally from Chicago. I knew Fannie Lou reasonably well. I went down to her home in Ruleville a couple of times. Wow. The American Freedom from Hunger Foundation in Washington, through its operations all over the U.S., raised money for the Freedom Farm. And that allowed former sharecroppers to own and operate a co-op farm uh, in Ruleville. And it was, it was remarkably successful. One other thing I would say about Fannie Lou, and I drove her around Chicago many, I mean, to many places, in those years of 69 to 71, Fannie Lou was able to learn enough about the FHA 235 and 236 programs to build well over 100 homes in Ruleville. And she made a point mm-hmm. to give exactly half of those homes to poor blacks and half of it to poor whites. Mm-hmm. She was politically astute, and she knew the, the benefits of doing that, not just helping people, and she was very even-handed, but also the benefits of treating everyone equally. She was really dedicated to that. Thank you for sharing that, Chris. I'm actually getting really moved uh, right now just hearing (laughs) your direct connection uh, because it's also a reminder of how recent um, Mm -hmm. her story, this history all is. Uh, That was was very powerful. Thank you for sharing um, that that those stories, Chris, and um, I heard you kind of mm-hmm along to to the points of her, um, you know, being yeah. specific and reaching out to both black and white folk, and and again this interconnected mission of hers. Can you um, just any reactions that you have for Chris's call? Actually, mm-hmm. yes, yes, it was so beautiful to hear. Um, you know, there was a I think a particular moment where Danny Luhamer, um you know, she was trying to respond to a number of things and many people were criticizing her. And one of the critiques that people would throw her way, they would say, you know, all you're trying to do is is focus on, you know, black rights. All you're trying to do is build some black party. Uh, and it, it, it was a way for them to suggest that she was just pushing a sort of black nationalist kind of message. Um, and she would push back. And there, you know, there's a line uh, that she gave in an interview that that stayed with me. She said, hunger has no color line. Um, and she says, I'd walk a mile for any man who is hungry, black or white. Um, and she meant it. She she really meant it. You know, it it was something about, you know, and I always marvel at this. I marvel at the strength of a woman who had gone through so much. You know, in 1961, um, she was a victim of forced sterilization at the hands mm, of a white yes. doctor, right? Um, and I, I spoke about the Winona beating. I mean, if there's anyone who could have, developed um, some animosity, right? Hatred um, with white people, you know, it would have been Fannie Lou Hamer, but that wasn't her, right? She loved people. And even despite all the pain she went through, she would fight. I mean, if you showed up at her doorstep and didn't matter what you look like, did not matter your background, and you needed a plate of food, she would open up her door. Um, it was just remarkable, the kind of person that she was always giving up herself, um, putting herself at risk, always uh, for the betterment, right, of society, for others. And I think there's something uh, I think that we have to learn uh, because we're at a moment where we focus 
too much on ourselves, right? I mean, it's always I, I, I. Um, and Fannie Lou Hamer's mission is always, what do we need as a collective? Uh, and so hearing that story is, is so powerful because it shows us, right, she's leaving Mississippi, she's in Chicago, she's thinking critically, how do I meet the needs uh, of people? Um, what do I do to, to make it better? Uh, and you're absolutely right that it wasn't, right? It didn't matter um, your racial background. It didn't matter any of it. Uh, if you needed help, she would give you the help that you needed. We're talking with historian Keisha Blaine. Her new book is Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. This is Forum. I'm Ariana Prail and Fermina Kim. So, yes, you mentioned the forced sterilization, which um, just just shocking and, and terrible to read about, but was very common at the time. Um, I think you referred to it, or it was commonly known as the Mississippi appendectomy. Black women would go in for a routine procedure for something else and would leave um, having been sterilized. Um, and there was just so much that her body endured. Um, and we've spoken about some of the, the beatings, but can you just speak a little bit more to the toll um, that her activism took on her physically um, and and how some of that still echoes today. Yes, you know, there's a moment that I uh, describe in the book where Fannie Lou Hamer uh, is in a picket line, you know, and she's there uh, as she always was. You know, there's something happening in the community and she she would just quickly show up to support. She was in a picket line and just fainted. Um, and, and it's in that moment that I think so many people around her realized, okay, something's wrong here. We're talking about a woman who just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, in that particular instance, uh, certainly exhausted, but also uh, she developed a number you know, of, of medical issues. Uh, you know, she had breast cancer. Um, she had diabetes that, that was uncontrolled. Um, she found herself, I think, toward the end of her life um, in, in a place of despair. Uh, certainly, she was you know, battling with, with depression because uh, she worked so hard, so hard to help so many people. And I think there was a moment where she realized that when she needed others uh, to, to be there for her, they were not always there. And I think that was painful for her uh, to endure. Um, but she, I think, um, went through both, you know, the, the physical ailments that we, we spoke about, you know, uh, earlier, and then towards the end of her life, um, the emotional and psychological toll. I think as I was reading her letters in these last few years, one could see the way that all of these experiences had kind of chipped away from her, right? It just took something from her um, and it was painful. I think I struggled through to write that last chapter and um, I'm always in tears every time I, I go back mm -hmm. to, to those last few years because um, I just, you know, wish that the um, the outcome was so much different. I And, and of course we, we can't um, change what has taken place, but, but, but it is important, I think, to reflect on what happens to to, to those of us who give up, you know, give of ourselves and, and our energies and our time, you know, what, what happens, you know, we, we can celebrate, you know, all of the, 
the uh, activists today, you know, who are pushing, you know, all the leaders who are trying to make things better, but we also need to be mindful of their needs, whether we're talking about physical or emotional or, you know, I mean, I, I think we don't often think of, of, of the needs of those who are fighting on the front lines. Um, and, and Fannie Lou Hamer's story, I think, is a cautionary tale in making sure that we are fully supporting those of us, um, you know, those among us who, who are fighting for all of us. Well, Wanda writes, thank you for the inspiring conversation this morning. As a 64-year-old Black woman raised in Oakland, this has enlightened me in that we should not and cannot condemn those that are protesting, but to just listen to and try to understand uh, that ideology is the best stance to take. Um, Well, very well said. Thank you, Wanda. And we are going to, um, I know that you mentioned This Little Light of Mine was a song Um, that was significant in um, Fannie Lou Hamer's life. And we actually have a version of that um, by Odetta that we'll be playing um, to close. Um, But just any final thoughts in the last 30 seconds or so of just the inspiration that Fannie Lou Hamer has had in your own life? Fannie Lou Hamer has transformed me in so many ways. And I think uh, we often focus on what we don't have. It's easy to say, well, I don't have certain resources or perhaps I don't have certain access or networks or skills. But the question isn't what we don't have. The question is, what do you have? How can you be of service? How can you help this nation move forward? And I think when we figure out the answer to that question, we can live um, you know, lives that are impactful and meaningful in so many ways. So I hope people take that from Hamer's story. Dr. Keisha Blaine, historian, um, also associate professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh. Her book is Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And Form is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Lauerberg, myself, Blanca Torres, and Grace Wan. Susan Britton is the lead producer for the 10 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, and Chris Hoff. Our interns are Kimya Akbari and Jennifer Ng. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Have a great weekend, y'all. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? 
or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.